Welcome to the Career Conversations podcast brought to you by Hunter Recruitment Group and I'm your host Craig McGregor and I'm excited to let you know that we've uh, moved slightly past COVID lockdown stage of our podcast and we haven't had to use Zoom for this one. We're using our our technology, our microphones and, and sitting in a room with someone and enjoying their company and getting to know more about them through their career exciting conversation today with a with an old friend, a, a gentleman by the name of Greg Kerr. Greg's an industrial relations specialist and I met Greg at a uh, Hunter Business Chamber meeting about 12 or so years back and we, and we talk about that uh, chance meeting in the podcast and, and the potential of us working together back then and uh, Greg's uh, career took a slight detour uh, with a, a station at the University of Newcastle where he was um, 2IC in the IR department and did a great job at that in that large uh, hunter business. Um, so sit back and enjoy our fascinating conversation uh, with Greg Kerr. Today's podcast is brought to you by Hunter Recruitment Group. People-centric recruiters, HRG looks to use technology and personal interviewing techniques to ensure the best fit possible for both the candidate and the employer. We operate labour hire and temp services for various sites, conduct permanent recruitment searches and have an innovative program we call temp to perm You can find us on the web www.hrgroup.com.au or search for us on your favourite social site, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. Whether you're an employer looking for a fantastic new team member or you're an individual seeking their next great career move, Start a conversation with Hunter Recruitment Group today. So welcome to the Career Conversations podcast, Greg Kerr. Thank you very much, Craig. It's good to see you again. Awesome. So yeah, it's, it's been a while and I, I, was, I wanted to start with my memories of our first meeting. I think it was at a Hunter Business Chamber meeting about, I'm going to say 12, 13 years ago. And we, we started chatting about HR and IR stuff and I, I remember going, didn't do much networking that night because I just got stuck in the corner talking cool stuff with Greg. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds pretty much right. Yeah. uh, What was the business development forum or something like that? One uh, of those. Where we went along to try and network. Yeah, it it was like that. And then we, I I think I dropped in to talk to you at one stage in the office you were working in in Newcastle. Newcomers Way back. Yep. Uh, Yeah, that's that's a long time ago. It is. And look, there's been a a few conversations here and there we catch up every now and then I remember we'll get to it but you were working at the uni and I was doing some work out there so I said hey let's grab lunch and we that's chewed right. the fat over lunch uh, yes I, I remember that we, we ended up talking about one of my um, former bosses yeah if I remember rightly <laughs> I won't, won't mention anything <laughs> further about that but that was a very interesting conversation yeah <laughs> no, that was a good day actually yeah and, and we were toying with the idea of um, creating a bit of I remember we, we were gonna we, we started a brand called retain HR where we're going to mm. create this little triangle of HR consulting, recruitment and IR consulting and, and we were almost there and then you bloody got a job at the University of Newcastle on us. Well, that's right and that wasn't something I was expecting and it, it turned up, I mean, it was partly partly family yeah. that uh, needed to have a more, um, shall we say, predictable and definite income stream than consulting normally provides. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so I toddled off to the uni and uh, the three of us became yeah, the two, two that's right. uh, in Retain HR and yeah. I just kept on going with the uni and I was there for eight, 
2008 to, yeah, about eight years at the uni. So I remember uh, part of your decision at the uni was the your commitment to the choir. And I thought before we get to the mm. IR, Greg Kerr, I wanted to talk to you about your second career and your uh, choir. Yes. choir Because I remember... Um, you were was it Channel Seven had the choir competition? Was that it was it yep. was Battle of the Choirs Battle of the on choirs. Channel Seven in two thousand and so it's kind of like Australia's Got Talent for Choirs. That that's right. Yep. It, it was a model that had been done before in I think the UK and the US. Yep. And Channel Seven and Granada TV brought it to Australia, and they invited sixteen choirs, of which the University of Newcastle Chamber Choir was one. And, and from memory, you won. We did. Yeah. Um, it was quite extraordinary. That process cost me probably almost three months' worth of work <laughs> because we were spending so much time in rehearsals, um, in travelling to and from Sydney to the TV studios uh, for a, a day at a time, basically, to record each of the, the rounds and then the quarterfinal and then the semifinal and then on the same night as the semifinal, the final, the grand final... Uh, and yes, we won it, um, which was spectacular. It was really interesting. Uh, I've always been in choirs that were your traditional choir, classical music, um, all very po-faced and formal. And this required us to get out of our comfort zone. We had to do everything from memory. Uh, it was almost all pop music, which we hadn't been aware of at the time we were invited to, to do the thing. <laughs> Um, and we had to move what what became known as choralography, um, which was choralography. I love choralography. It. <laughs> it was just mind blowing, um, and the the stuff that we did is still on YouTube. Okay. So if you if you Google Battle of the Choirs or University of Newcastle Chamber Choir, and you'll come up with YouTube stuff. And every now and then on Facebook, yeah, you know, those of us who are in up. the choir comes up with a memory, and one of the one of the uh, the YouTube videos, of what was I looking at recently, was Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, nice. Um, which was the grand final, and that's where we, we sealed it. Um, the, the funny thing about that was that I think two days after the grand final, um, we chuffed off to, the, the, the whole choir chuffed off to Tasmania to do some um, touring down there and the Festival of Voices in Hobart. Now... We'd recorded the whole thing. It had finished on the, on the say, Tuesday. We were in, in Hobart then a week or so later. And our, our round, the very beginning of the thing this for was us... live TV. Well, it was all pre-recorded. Yep. Um, ..was being broadcast on that Sunday night at the end of the Festival of Voices. And we were absolutely busting... <laughs> to say, oh, we won, we won. <laughs> but um, we, we couldn't even say that we won the round yeah. because it hadn't been broadcast yet and we'd all all sound, signed in blood to say that we would never say a word about <laughs> it. But it was it was extraordinary. And then the choir went on in competition. We'd always done a fair bit of competition. There, but then we went, yes, yeah, so that was 2008. Then 2010 we went to China for a thing called the World Choir Games it, that bills itself fairly grandiosely as the <laughs> as the Olympics of choral singing. Um, did quite well there. Um, then two years later, went to the same thing in uh, the US and did some touring around Boston, Washington, um, Bermuda, which was terrific. 
uh, and so on. And then in 2014, went to um, a festival, uh, what was it called, the Rhythms of One World in Geneva, uh, run by the UN. So from that sort of experience yeah. in 2008, a lot of had quite you travelled that extensively beforehand. Or Sorry? Did, did, had you travelled that extensively beforehand um, for the choir or, or did that victory open up doors for you? The choir had actually done some travelling before but fairly low-key tours. They'd yep. done one to, I think, South Korea. This is well before I joined the choir. Uh, South Korea and the UK, at least one to the UK. Um, and indeed the year that I joined the choir went to the UK but it, because of work and other things it just didn't happen mm. for me so I didn't go. Um, but then it really took off after, after the the Battle of the Choirs. Yeah. So yeah, it's been really good, and I'm so still singing a, with choirs. Is it like a second career? Is it it's passion? Uh, really a passion. Yeah. Uh, you know, if if um, it's I, obviously unpaid, I, but you, you, absolutely. It's like, you know, me yeah. with sport, or uh, yeah. you know, other people with their other loves in their life. You're so dedicated to it. Yeah. So at various stages, I think I've been in three choirs at a time. Yep. Um, so that translates to about three nights a week with rehearsals um, and then performances on a regular basis. Chamber choir performed a lot. Most most community choirs will do perhaps three concerts a year perhaps, where chamber choir was doing performances of one sort or another probably at least once a month. So yeah, okay. we did a lot of work, which meant a lot of rehearsal. How many people um, are you talking? How many's in the choir? Um, when I first joined, it was about mid-twenties. Uh, by the time we did Battle of the Choirs, it got up to 40. Yeah, wow. Um, when we went to China, we took 40, about mid-40s in terms of number of singers, and it stayed at that level for the next few years and then dropped back to the mid-twenties, and that was a conscious decision on the part of the, the then director, Philip, Dr Philip, Philip Mathias, uh, in terms of what he, what sort of sound he wanted, what sort of work he wanted to do with the choir, um, but other choirs I've been in range from. Uh, there was one I was in in Sydney when I was living down there, which we started with, I think about fourteen people. We got it up to about sixteen. That's where we wanted to sit. Other choirs I've been a member of, of uh, Newcastle University Choir, which is not the Chamber Choir, it was about a hundred to one hundred and twenty. So. Yeah, right huge range of sizes but yeah it's all it's all done for love yeah. um, you'd starve to death if you relied on <laughs> what you got out of it but well, i'm guessing you're now an expert in choirology ah uh, pretty much <laughs> i know what i'm looking for um i now mostly sing with christchurch cathedral choir which yep. um is a very obviously a very particular range of music but it's a it's a good choir in terms of its standard of singing and okay. and the other thing I really like I get bored easily yep. um, the other thing I really like about it is we do different music every week so you're always learning really fast you don't spend a lot of time polishing so you need to get it right up front okay. um, as, or as best you can anyway um, and that, that's good, that's really great fun. That's one of the things I liked about Chamber Choir is we got through a huge amount of repertoire because of the number of performance we were, performances we were doing um, and we were always working. So it was incredibly intellectually stimulating and very much emotionally satisfying too as well as pretty social. Um, yeah, I could imagine. You'd yeah. build up some great friendships and yeah. shared love of something. 
Yeah, and people that I sang with in, in Sydney, and I haven't been in Sydney since the mid-90s, um, still in touch with yep. uh, on a regular basis, and that all came out of choirs, basically. That's great. So it's good fun. All right, let's go back then. Let's yeah. talk about the other side of Greg Kerr. Ooh, so yes. where, did, where did you grow up, Greg? Uh, Merriweather. So you're local? Yep. yep. Um, brought up in Merriweather, lived there, went to Newcastle Uni. Um, did you did you know you wanted to go into IR work? I didn't have a clue. Yep. Um, my first degree was uh, Bachelor of Arts yep. um, uh, with honours in philosophy. Um, so why did you do that? Um, did you have a career path in mind or did you just want well, to learn? Well, oddly enough, it was because I was thinking of becoming a Catholic priest. Okay. So to do that, part of the deal was we studied philosophy and I was very lucky that instead of disappearing into the wilds of the Blue Mountains to the old the seminary there, yep. we got to choose and we could go to Newcastle Uni, do our philosophy there and then we would have gone on to Manly. I pulled out before that. Um, so that's why philosophy... Um, in terms of a career choice, not not a great um, deal of career availability. Mm-hmm. Um, but having done four years of it, I then started doing postgrad work. Um, worked out that the life of an itinerant academic philosopher was pretty precarious, and end up joining the public service in okay. in Canberra um, with Australian Archives. Um, so. Australian Archives looks so after the records of the public service. You moved from beautiful beach town Merriweather to nice and sunny Canberra. Uh, sunny but chilly, <laughs> um, except in winter, in summer when it was stinking hot. Yep. Um, yeah, not a great climate really. Yep. Uh, and I think I was in Canberra for about four years and I think in the whole of that time, I probably spent one long weekend in Canberra. Yeah. Uh, pretty much every second weekend, I was on the road yep. back to Newcastle yep. and keeping up with friends in Newcastle. So, what's the, what was the, so managing the archives? What was the role? Um, had a few roles, but the basic mission of archives is to look after the um, no longer current records of government, of the public service. So, if you imagine. Um, several very large warehouses in Canberra filled with box after box after box of files. Um, So our job was to, um, in particular where I worked, was to go out and look at what documents, what records departments were keeping, um, work out what needed to be kept. Um, Anything that didn't need to be kept, we created what were called disposal schedules um, if material was to be kept, we would be responsible for going out, working out what was there, documenting it, and bringing it into storage in in archives. So that that was re- it was interesting work. Yep. Uh, one of the departments I worked on was the Department of Defence. Um, so they had some fascinating records. Um, I remember, yeah, still I remember imagine. going down to. Uh, you may not be familiar with it, the Foreign Affairs Building, the old Foreign Affairs Building, looks like something out of out of uh, 50s <laughs> communist architecture. architecture. Yep. Um, but in the sub-basement of there, they had, the Department of Defence had um, what were called the records of proceedings of Her Majesty's Australian ships from World War II. So every naval vessel... 
um, would fill in basically a diary like a log. of where it went. You know, this wasn't the navigation log, this was a record of their operations okay. or what they were doing. Yep. So I went out to survey those. You know, so you know, dingy, dingy, dark, dusty um, sub-basement with lots and lots of water pipes and so on just waiting to flood the place. Um, it sounds so like it fascinating work. Yeah, I think about it though. You've done philosophy. You're in these mm. um, archives. Was it? I'm, I'm trying to imagine it as a, a like a, not a lonely job, but I'm guessing it's a job where you'd be dedicated and ploughing through a lot of work individually. Or were you part of a team? How did it work? We, we were part of a team. Yep. Okay. Um, so the team I was part of, um, uh, there were four of us in our team and we had a portfolio of departments and agencies that we looked after and then we worked there were three of those teams um, and then there was a sort of a central registry area um, so it was actually it was actually a very very social mob okay um, and we all worked fairly closely together and we we all socialized yep. regularly together as well um, and that, so that was really good. The, the work, you know, if you're going out to look at someone's records, you tended to go out on your own, but most of the work was in the office. In the office. Um, and it was a very, very much a team-orientated uh, workplace. And then I moved to the central office and was working on some special projects there for a while. Did you stay in Canberra for long or was there a uh, about drive four to, years and you wanted to come back to... Wanted to get back to the coast yep. more than anything else. So yep. I ended up jagging a... a a transfer, I think, to Sydney, of all places, <laughs> the internal audit unit of the Department of Defence. I knew absolutely nothing about audit, nothing <laughs> about finance. Uh, what they wanted, they said, was people with research skills, and I certainly had those yep. from my academic work and also from my archival work. Um, so I managed to get to Sydney, which was really great. Um, audit was interesting, shall we say and a very interesting group of people to work with. Um, and I was there for probably two, two to three years. Um, got a temporary transfer to what was called the Deputy Regional Secretary um, for Army Training Command, um, which is a very grandiose title for saying you're the person who looks after uh, civilian employees who work within the Army Training Command. So Training Command runs you know, like the School of Infantry up, infantry up at Singleton, yep. um, the Artillery School, Armoured Vehicle School, the uh, School of Military Engineering out at, uh, I think it was Moorbank or out that way. Um, so I was based at George's Heights, sort of near Mossman in Sydney, uh, which was great because that was just a 15-minute walk up the hill from where I was living at the time. Um, but that got me into... Um, what defence called civil personnel. So that was my first real introduction to personnel management. Yeah. Um, after about six months there, I was given the choice of either going back to Canberra for a couple of years to learn all about finance and finance management in the public sector. I thought, mm, perhaps not. <laughs> um, but at the same time, the Public Service Board uh, was running a thing they called the Personnel Management Scheme, which was for people who were wanting to build a career in personnel management within the Australian Public Service. And that was 12 months. Um, 
I think, three or four placements of about three months each and interspersed with coursework. So did you choose that because you Mm. loved the idea of personnel management or you hated the idea of doing finance in Canberra? Probably the latter. Yeah, right. Wow. Um, And I didn't want to go back to Canberra. so That wasn't (laughs) what I was expecting in the answer. Um, No. So, no, it wasn't really because I love personnel management. I certainly thought it was much more interesting. Yep. Anything to do with people is interesting. Mm. And certainly it was much more interesting than the thought of being everlastingly stuck in the wilds of a finance branch in in any department, let alone the Department of Defence. Um, so the training that you did then, was it, was, it, was it internal personal management training through the public service or was it like a TAFE uh, No, it was internal. It was all internal. internal. Yep. So I did... Uh, my memory is probably not going to work terribly well. Three placements. First one was with the Department of Immigration and Ethnic Affairs. Um acting in the position of team leader in their... I can't even remember what what the team did, but it was personnel operations, basically. Then I did a placement with the then new Australian National Maritime Museum um, on personnel policy, developing their their policies for running their their people. So are we talking early 90s? So we're talking here um, mid-80s. Mid-80s, So 86, 87 we're at. Yeah, okay. And... um, So it kind of would have been at the forefront of that sort of, I suppose, movement, wouldn't it? Most organisations would have had that. And you're in a public sector area looking at, okay, how do we do this more effectively? So they were pretty good. And then my final placement... Uh, was with BHP because we weren't limited to the public sector. You basically got to generate your own placements and I have no memory at all of how I came up with BHP. But anyway, I ended up talking to them and they offered me three months placement in their then central industrial relations department, which was based in Sydney. Um, And that was my first experience of IR, apart from being a, a rabid union member at the time when I was first working in Sydney. Yep. Uh, in Canberra. Um, and then that was interspersed with two-week lots of of coursework run internally by uh, senior people in the public service um, about a whole range of aspects of personal management. Um, so that's how I got into it. And mm. then... So I'd been out of the Department of Defence for 12 months while this was happening. So at the end of... We're talking about, what, July 87 now, I think. Uh, took a couple of weeks' leave. And then... Um, rang up my boss, the head of civil manpower in Defence New South Wales, and said, oh, g'day, um, I'm coming back. Uh, where do you want me to report? And there was just this sort of silence <laughs> as he tried to remember, who the hell is this person? <laughs> and he, to buy time, clearly, he said, oh, uh, what have you been doing? So I sort of said, blah, 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 and mentioned BHP Industrial Relations, and I could... I could see the lights go on yeah, um, over the phone. And he said, oh, oh, how did you enjoy industrial relations? Oh, it was really good. Found it fascinating, really interesting. Steel industry, mining, yeah. shipping with BHP. Um, oh, that's, that's really interesting because our, the regional industrial officer has just spat the dummy. Um, so there's a vacancy. Then would you be interested in the job? So I said, yes. So that was how I got into industrial relations as yeah, a career wow. move in the mid-'80s, yep. um, 87, and I've been working in industrial relations ever pretty much ever since. Yep. 
in a whole range of areas. How did you go, like you mentioned, you were a rabid union um, member. If, if I was to stereotype people, and most mm. listeners would think an industrial relations lawyer or a HR practitioner and a union member, they're usually at loggerheads, they're fighting. How did you deal with that when you moved from, I suppose, one side of the table to the other or do you don't see it that way? Or Step me through that. Help, help okay. people understand. Um, I guess most HR practitioners... Yes, you may work for different sides and represent their their differing interests, and they are quite different. And particularly in the eighties, there were yeah. you know, it was the razor gang in the federal public service and lots of strike action, all sorts of stuff. But underlying all of that is most HR practitioners have got a real dedication to doing the right thing um, and ensuring that things are done properly. That, and people are looked after, that they're paid correctly, all of those things. Yeah, I agree. So from that point of view, while you may be on different sides, there is still a, a, a very deep commonality in what it is you want to achieve and how you want to achieve it. It's just the way you go about it uh, differs fairly spectacularly at, at times. Um, also, during this period, I was studying law. Um, and So again, did you openly think I want to be a lawyer or did you have a career path in mind when you started that course or or now yeah. that you've fallen into IR did you say oh there's a there's a pathway here for me or yeah I, I'd originally when I'd first started law I was I was working in in defense audit and thinking I don't know this is not really where I want to be or yep. or this is not a career path perhaps I was quite happy working in audit but yeah in terms of career and long term no that really wasn't something that turned me on. Um, so the idea was probably to become a lawyer um, and work in law, but I hadn't really given much yeah, thought to way. what that and might isn't be. isn't that a real... Um, like, if you reflect back, like, theology and going down the church religion mm. path, now looking at law, that, that's, that's really a distant um, connection, isn't it? Like, there's not much... It, 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 on the surface, yeah. it is, okay. but you would be surprised how many people... Um, who either had been priests or had been thinking at some t- stage of becoming priests ended up as lawyers. Yeah, fascinating. Um, of the the mob that I started with in first year uni, uh, I think there were about a dozen of us all up, um, and 25% of those are certainly not priests, uh, but are lawyers. So that's a fairly high yeah, thing, and, and a lot of other people I know who've left the priesthood have become lawyers, yeah, uh, okay. judges, worked in the court system, uh, etc. Part of it, I think, is about intellectual rigour. Yep. Um, it, it's a it, it's about both theology and law are very much about critical thinking, mm. um, and I think the other thing is that a lot of lawyers are driven by a sense of the importance of justice um, and about social justice quite often as well. So those two tend to go together. Yeah. Um, so that that there is a fit there, which is not immediately yeah, like obvious, I, but there is a fit. Like I said, like just thinking out loud, I went, wow, that's a real mm. change. But after hearing that, you kind of go, yeah, yeah it's, it, it's it, really interesting. It works. Yeah. It, yeah, and you can see why it works after you sort of get into it a bit. Yeah. Um, so, but my ideas about law were more that it was it was um, 
It was a decent career path. Uh, it was interesting. Um, I had no idea what it meant to be a lawyer in private practice. Um, but the law was interesting. And again, my background was an analysis, rigorous analysis, research, which yep. is what lawyers fit. Uh, well, particularly if you're studying law, that's what you're, what you're all about. So I was studying law, and this was all going on in the background, my move into IR. Um, so obviously I studied uh, the one unit that was available in the <laughs> law degree at that time in industrial relations, industrial regulation. Um, I was already working in IR by then, so I had a fair idea of what was going on. Um, How did you find... I've talked to a number of people about that experience. How did you find university or study in a field where you were working? Like, you could be so much more critical in your analysis of the theory, or you could... I always say, I used to argue with my lecturers around, well, that's not how this works in the real world. You know, I'm, mm. I'm in EBA negotiations with um, three union delegates from different unions and this is what we're doing. Yeah. So what you're saying here is, is totally different in theory to what's happening in my real world practice. So I really enjoyed that component of learning because I was, I was doing it at the same time. Did you have that sense as well? Not particularly. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was studying externally. Yep. Um, so... My course materials came by post. Okay. So My experience that. of lectures was way back then was yep. cassettes. Yeah, right. Uh, turning up by post, which occasionally I listened to because they were generally pretty awful, <laughs> um, and just lots of reading and writing essays. And yep. you turned up. I think we had one. So I was probably doing one or possibly two subjects per per year because they were full year. Yep. Oh, no, they were semester subjects. Um, and we had one weekend per subject, so okay. that was it. Um, and interestingly enough, arguing with your lecturers was not... Um, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say arguing, uh, but... You know, ro- robust discussion and debate <laughs> was, was discussion. something that wasn't, wasn't generally recommended with the, yeah, okay. the lecturers at the law school I attended, which I won't mention the name <laughs> of. Um, but... Uh, it was interesting because the other students um, tended to be people like me who were already working full-time. Uh, a lot of them were working in the court system and, or the government and they were looking for an extra yep. qualification that would help them directly in their career. So I talked to a lot of them about the practicalities and our shared experience and of the law and its operation in, in reality. Um, rather than with my academic teachers because I didn't really didn't see them very much and yeah. when I did see them it was in as one of a group of about 40 in a, a supersized yep. what was effectively a supersized two-day tutorial yeah um, but uh, anyway it took me a long time but I eventually eventually got through the degree um, at this stage I'd moved from the Department of Defence to New South Wales Fire Brigades is one of their industrial officers. That was absolutely fascinating. That was great work. And again, f- Fire Brigades is a very close-knit community, really. Um, very interesting place to work. So that was a really good grounding in the nuts and bolts of IR. Um, and a lot of it is really about people. And the one thing that I would say about working as an industrial officer for management, uh, for an employer, is 
a lot of people in unions you talk to and think, oh, you know, you must be a, a fascist or whatever. Uh, you're on the boss's side. Uh, but I keep pointing out to me, in fact, I spend a, a very large amount of my time negotiating with management to try and persuade them that what they would really much, very much like to do is perhaps not such a great idea and that they really need to take account of the realities of the regulatory system That's and a, what yeah. they can and can't do. So a lot of what I, what my experience has been over the years as uh, um, working in management and for management is curbing their, their desires and trying to redirect them in a more productive yep. um, and, a really and good, compliant yeah. um, direction. Really good way of describing it. I totally agree that most mm. people see the IR department or the HR department as the bad guy, that yeah. we're having those negotiations with or whatever, but mm. you're exactly right. They're the guys that are then going to management saying, no, you can't do that. Yeah. They don't see that side of it to, hang on, we're going to change the roster, but no, we can't. Yeah. And then it, never, then it never meets the light of day. And so you're advocating for the employee side probably more so quite often than the employer um, side. And yeah, that, that's right. And you know, there are times when, whether it's an individual grievance or an employee who hasn't been paid correctly, um, you are going to the, the, the payroll manager or a senior manager and saying, "Well, you know, look, sorry, mm. but you can't do this." Mm. Um, and when things get really extreme, <laughs> you end up saying to them. I'm not going to let you do this. Uh, I will go over your head. And I still vividly remember um, being in a meeting once with the then um, uh, chief officer of the fire brigades. position doesn't really exist anymore as such. Uh, and the union. Um, and there was a very close relationship because this guy had been a member of the union since he was a, a probationary firefighter. He was now at the other end of his career. And I still vividly remember him, he and the union had got some deal that they wanted to do and, and I just said, sorry, no, can't do it, not going to allow it. Um, I'm not sure who was more surprised. I don't think the union was terribly surprised, <laughs> um, but he certainly was. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that, that is a way a lot of it works and that carries through. Yeah. Uh, I think what's changed for me is that working in consultancy now, what I like to try and do is get my clients to the point where my relationship with them is much more about they come to me and say, we think we want to do this or this is what we need to do. How do we do it? Can we do it? Um, so it, it becomes very much an educative um, process of saying, well, these are the things you need to understand. This is how the system works. This is what you have to do. Um, Talk to me before you do something yeah. so you don't end up in some very long, involved, expensive and complicated mess um, when there is a better way of doing it. And that's, that's where I try and position... That's where I tried to position management when I was working in IR and it's what I try and do with my clients now. Yeah, and it's a great position to be in. And I'm, mm. I've referred, referred you on a few times and I know that you look after your customers in that way, but it's unfortunate that... The, the problem we have with small business, I think, is most people head in the sand and they'll ring Greg mm. when they've got a problem as but, opposed yeah. to going... But once you've built that relationship, then it's more yep. proactive to say, yeah. hey, if you do this, we won't get those problems and yeah. we'll be much more effective business. That's so exactly right. Yeah. 
uh, it, it's so from their point of view, it's so much more productive and indeed profitable to do it that way and to understand what they're dealing with so they don't just go off half-cocked. Not so sure that a lot of it is head in the sand. That has the sort of connotation of they're, they're deliberately hiding, and some of them do. There's oh, no I'm, question about that. I don't mean deliberately hiding, but they just don't want to know about it, or they just say, yeah. it's too hard. Yeah, and that's something I get. And, and look, I have a lot of sympathy with that because the Australian industrial relations yeah, system is very unique. complicated, it's unique, um, and it's a lot easier now to find out what the awards are and what the rates are, but you have to know that you need to ask the question. And sometimes it's really difficult to know what question to ask. Um, there's a huge amount of information out there, but for a lot of people, yeah, it is just too hard. And for small businesses, m- most of my practice these days, and this reflects I ended up when I moved to Newcastle, it was to take up a position as the manager of industrial relations and legal with the master builders. So I was dealing with predominantly small to medium enterprises. Um, and that's who I deal with now, and that's largely a matter of choice because I like dealing with those people. Um, for them, they spend the vast bulk of their life just chasing the business and mm. trying to keep the thing ticking over and working at whatever it is they do. Anything, any time they have to spend on, oh, what's the award? How does this work? Where do I find the information? Is time that they begrudge and time, quite frankly, they they really don't feel they have. Yeah, well, and it comes down to that that age-old outsourcing question, isn't it? If you're yep. a fantastic builder, why would you spend time doing award interpretation yeah. or industrial yeah. relations management? Go and be the best builder you can and make as much money as you can being the expert that you are. Yeah, and have someone else come in and say, "Here's the rule book. Here's how yeah. we need to work." Yep. and help you in that space. Yeah. The, the problem is that a lot of, as you know, a lot of these issues um, are the things that happen on site yep. um, every day, day in, day out. You need to know How, the nuts and bolts yep. at, at a very basic level before you can manage, you can be a, the best builder you can be. Mm. Um, uh, if you don't do that, then... It doesn't matter how good your building skills are. You won't you won't have employees, or you'll be mm. up to your neck in in disputes of one sort or another. You need to know it at a, at least a basic level. But it's um, really I, I find this fascinating, and it's so like we've done a lot of um, HR as opposed to IR mm. audits with small business over yep. the last fourteen years, and I'm going to say ninety five percent of them, base the it basically comes down to the owner loves doing what they do yep and they just want to do that that's right and they want to go that's really painful this thing over here this hr policy and industrial relations i don't want to deal with it so my usually my solution is a you have to deal with it Mm. or b you can outsource it or c we hire someone to be the manager of it so if you want to be the best real estate sales agent you've got you can and you've got 15 staff then be the best real estate agent, mm. but put in a general manager who's going to take care of office, operations, HR, and all the yeah. compliance issues so you can do what you love. So mm. it's trying to figure out how to manage that as a business yeah. is and really that's, difficult. That's really hard, and yeah. that requires a certain level of 
turnover yep. and business to be enabled to Correct. split them in, in that way. Because that's what um, happens. They usually start, they, yep. they go off, and if we use real estate as an example, they become a real estate agent. They might have two employees, yep. and they grow because they're really, really good at what they yep. do. And then they get to 10 or they get to 15, and then it becomes this, oh, my God, how do I manage this? Yeah. And I just want to go and sell property. <laughs> yeah. So. And I used to see that all the time in the building industry. Yeah. Uh, it's it, every Exactly industry. that. It's you, you're good at it, you grow. Mm. As you grow, it becomes more complicated. And suddenly, you're not on site. You're yeah. marketing. You're finding clients. Yep. You're working out about the subcontractors. You're looking at contracts. And that's the problem because suddenly, if you're managing a growing business, the last thing that you can afford to put your time in is the stuff that actually got you into it in the first place. Yep. And until you get to the next stage... You can't afford to bring someone else in yeah, to do really it. it's really difficult. So that's where I, I regard myself as working very hard to try and educate people so that... It's a bit of a give a man a fish philosophy. Yeah, exactly right. And you'll never tell the truth again. <laughs> um, teach him how to fish and you'll ne- never tell the truth again. <laughs> um, but it's very much a matter of if you at least understand this at a basic level, if you know where to find something as basic as what classification under what award should this person be in and what's the current rate of pay. Once you've got that down, then suddenly life becomes a lot easier. Then you can build on that. So that's what I try and do is just really basic stuff like saying to a client, oh, do you know what award you employ under? They often do, they usually do know that. Um, Classification, now we're starting to get a little bit, a little bit uncertain. so it's as basic as saying, okay, you need to find the award. Here's the website. Um, this is how you work your way through the website to find the award. Once you get into the award, this is where you find the pay rates. Yeah. It's all there. But it's just that really basic knowing yeah. where the information is, and that alone is a big help. And then having got that under their belt, then they can start doing and talking to me about the more tell me about difficult the, stuff. Tell me about the nexus of creating your own consultancy what what started that why did you jump in and do it yourself um again it wasn't because i really wanted to do that particularly uh, it was something i'd sort of thought about for some time but at the time i was working as a lawyer in a private practice um i wanted to do employment law and industrial work but that firm didn't really do a lot of that Uh, But instead, what I was doing was working in my other major area of law, which was construction law, building law. And I was was finding that my work was probably, you know, pick a number, but probably 75 to 80% building work. And of that, most of it was domestic building disputes. Um, I think in litigation terms, commercial litigation terms, Domestic building disputes are very similar to family law. Um, Before you can actually deal with the law, you have to deal with people's emotional (laughs) states and varying degrees of distress. If you're a a home owner who's getting a house built, they're not building a house for you, they're building a dream. Um, So there's a huge emotional investment in that, let alone the money. If you're the builder, then you're building a house. Mm. If you're a good builder, then you'll understand that you're actually building someone's dream 
and you will deal accordingly with your client and you'll communicate. If you're a, an average builder or even a reasonably good builder, you'll build a house and you probably won't communicate at the emotional level with them and that's where a lot of the disputes mm. got their steam up. Yep. Uh, I got sick of dealing, of yep. effectively trying to be a psychologist. Um, so I thought, a, yes, IR is renowned as an area of conflict, um, but it's a whole lot nicer level of conflict than it is in, con, in domestic building yeah, wow. disputes. Um, particularly, well, between uh, unions and management yeah. IR practitioners, you know, you're both there doing a job. You both understand the rules and you just you just talk to each other. You may not necessarily like each other very much. Been called a snake before by uh, well, union I, officials. I've jokingly told this story a number of times where I still remember back in my day when I was HR practitioner in a large manufacturing firm, we'd be in a room similar to this. There'd be four or five management on one side and four or five union delegates on the other side and, and we'd go hammer and tong. We would be mm. ne- negotiating, we'll call it, for a couple of hours. And then we'd step out at lunch and we'd be talking about, hey, Bob, how's your boat? You know, oh, hey, yeah. how's your son? Yeah, you still like Parramatta from the footy? You know, you're just yeah. friendly. Like they're, they're your friends still. Yeah. And then you'd go back in the room and you'd do your job. Yeah. But never did we take it personally or yeah. there, there was a good relationship and, and between everyone. That was the important part. You recognised each other as professionals yeah. and you knew what the bounds were yeah. and you knew what the difference was. Um, I think a lot of straight HR practitioners and a lot of managers don't understand that's one reason why they're afraid of mm. IR. Okay. Um, and I certainly had that experience. I do remember we were having one major dispute when I was with Defence and we ended up with the Deputy Chief of Naval Staff, so a Vice Admiral, I think, um, came up with several assorted senior managers and we had this huge meeting with the unions about this the strike action that was going on. Um, and towards the end of it, uh, the the union officials sort of whispered out of the side of his mouth to my boss from the IR mob in Canberra, oh, come down to the pub later. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> my boss's response was, yeah, see you down there every quarter of an hour, I've got, to re- got to get rid of this lot first. <laughs> and then we adjourned to the pub for a couple of hours. Yeah. And I mean, that that's the old days of IR. It doesn't really happen that way anymore, yeah. which depending on your point of view, is either sad or, is. or probably yeah. a good thing for your liver. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it is about that and understanding what the relationships are and what the roles are. Uh, and that's partly what I try and inculcate in, in my clients now is, you know, there's a, there's a place for this. You need to understand what it is that's going on and how to deal with it that will get rid of a lot of the angst. Yeah, it's almost like a sporting field. take the field. personality out of it. It's like a sporting field, you know, most... Yep rugby league or soccer players or whatever sport it is, they're mates, they step over the white line, they compete against each other, and then they're mates when they walk off the pitch yeah. again. It's a, it's a similar yeah. thing, I think. Yeah, it, it, it is at the professional level. Yeah. Um, between employer and employee, it's Sometimes, different. Yeah, you're right. um, uh, and one of the big things I find, particularly in dismiss, unfair dismissals or general protections claims and things like that, grievances, bullying, the difficulty is and this goes back to what I was saying about domestic building disputes to some extent, you need to be able to get your client to put the emotion aside before they can actually see the issues and deal with the issues effectively. Um, 
sometimes that comes down to getting them to disengage emotionally and engage commercially. Um, but that's a whole different story. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, it's it, a lot of it is about that, is being able to disengage the emotions so you can actually understand and deal with the issues. And that's a big part of my work, uh, always has been, and, and it's a part of most lawyers' work, yeah. to be perfectly honest. But anyway, I decided that I didn't want to spend my days working with um, angst-ridden builders and, and homeowners. Um, so I decided now is the time. Um, so I went out and hung my shingle out. Um, Tell me about that. Was it effective? Did you struggle at the start? Did you... Because we talked yeah. about it before, the, small, the real estate agent. He yeah. loves selling real estate. You love settling industrial matters. Yeah. But you've got to sell. You've got to bring business in. How did you find that part of being your own consultant? Pretty difficult. Yep. Um, I didn't have any any knowledge about marketing, but you know, being a member of the business chamber, for instance, was very helpful. Yep. Uh, going to networking groups was really useful because I got to listen to people talking about those skills that I didn't have and ways to do it. Um, I was I, I wasn't and still am not a very effective marketer. Um, I hate blowing my own trumpet. Mm. Um, I can blow it for you. Thank Mag- you. You're magnificent Excellent. at what you do. Excellent. Thank you. Thank every you. person that we've referred, every business, <laughs> it's always effective. So, hence uh, the name. That's right. Effective workplace, and and the, the that name actually is the motto is building effective workplace relations. Yeah, great. So it's just the two middle words of that. Um, not sure how how well I do that part of it, but I'm very effective at sorting out other sorts of disputes. So. Yeah, I wasn't very good at marketing. I enjoyed the work that I was doing. Um, I was getting enough in to sort of keep me going. Um, but what I was doing is building up networks and discovered that the best way for me to get work wasn't to go out and market directly. Mm. It was Building to talk to the people who the clients were talking to. Correct. And then they would refer them to me and that that worked out to be, and that's still the way I operate. I don't do any advertising, for instance. Yeah. It's all about uh, the people I know who talk to the people who ultimately come to my, become my clients. Mm. Uh, and that works really well because effectively they're coming through someone, they've to some extent already been vetted. Qualified, yeah. Uh, qualified, and that's really great. Uh, the one thing that I found really difficult after a few years was working in isolation because yeah. I, I work alone. You're like me, um, I was the same. Yeah. Starting my own business, that that was the, the hardest part, I reckon. Because when I was in Newcastle, like you mentioned before, um, there was a couple of business partners and a, mm. another business uh, shared an office. I think there's four or five of us in total. Yep. Yeah, and I, I came going up here there. and I was sitting in an office by myself and I hated it. Mm. I hated just sitting here by myself. So that's yeah. why I did the network. That was my driver of the network was to yep. have people around me. Yep, same here. Um, so that was one way of dealing with it. But after a few years, I found that it was getting more more difficult rather than less difficult. Yep. Uh, the way I operate hasn't really changed for the whole of that time, except that the internet has got faster. Um, my work has always been mostly by phone, and email, um, very not very much face to face apart mm. from initial meetings or appearances in the F- Fair Work Commission or whatever. Um, it does get very isolating if if you've got something you're not sure about, 
you haven't got anyone yeah. at hand to bounce the ideas off. And I always found it difficult to just ring someone up and bounce ideas off them because, well, you know, they're doing their own work. Yep. The time they're spending talking to you um, is coming straight out of their bottom yep. line. So I was always reluctant to do that. And that was one of the reasons, not the only reason, probably not even the major reason why I went to the university because I wanted to work yep. with, team. with other people again. Um, and it was a good team, yeah. um, really interesting. The work was really interesting. The people I dealt with were really interesting. Um, the issues I dealt with were really interesting. Um, it's a big business. It, it's a huge business. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the, about the second biggest employer yeah. in Newcastle. Um, and um, every, every business says that they're unique, but I think the university actually is really is right in saying that academics um yeah there's different business components isn't there academics yeah then you've got um, the um you know the the staff yeah the, the general staff the student we didn't deal got, with the students but you've got these different they're always in the background yeah um well, they're customers really aren't they they are the customers um but academics have a very a very different lifestyle from most workers different working style from most workers um, they have a very different set of attitudes from a lot of workers. So uh, it really was a unique workplace. It is a unique workplace. Um, but what got me there in the first place was, uh, as I said earlier, the need for um, a very predictable and regular income yep. um, for family reasons, um, but also getting out of the isolation. Um, but after eight years... Uh, Yep. Turning 60, decided, well, you know, now's probably a good time to leave. Uh, there was a bit of changeover. My boss was retiring at the same time. In fact, um, we unexpectedly retired on exactly the same day, <laughs> um, uh, which probably didn't do a lot of good for our successes. Um, but it was time to. It was time. It was a good time to move on, go back into what was theoretically at least semi-retirement. Um, which has turned out to be sometimes that and sometimes <laughs> the opposite, um, not re retired at all. Um, and that's been good. Uh, but I've also... There are a couple of other people around now who are in a similar position, so we we can talk to each other yeah, and great. bounce ideas off each other. So that partly has been addressed as well. So, yeah. I annoy you every now and then with a, hey, yeah. can I pick your brain, Greg? Yeah, <laughs> and that's really great because that keeps my brain working, which is always a useful thing. Um, and, yeah, it, it's contact. Yep. Um, uh, and uh, an outside voice, an outside view, uh, which is always lovely. Well, I, those things are great. I do that with a number of different yeah. people in my network. and. The stuff you talk about sometimes, you, you may have gone down, oh, I've got this customer that's got this issue with X, Y, Z, and then you end up talking about something else and you go, mm. oh, that was really productive. Well, that yeah. was really effective. Oh, absolutely. You know, it might be, it might be a marketing conversation or you know, whatever else, customer yeah. issue. So those things are, yeah, they're invaluable. Yeah. It, it's really great and it, it makes a difference, mm. even if you are still sitting in your own office. Um, that's right. You've had that human contact and yeah. that, that's really good. So yeah, it, I, I like it. I like the lifestyle. I enjoy it. I work from home. Yep. Um, I've got a, an office. Of, I've always had an office set up there because I've always had to work out of hours. Yep. Um, so I've just up the ante on some of the technology really um, to make it work as a consultancy and 
as I say, one of the, well, it was sort of a flip remark, the, the internet's faster now. Um, it's also much more effective. Yeah. There's much more information available. It, it really makes it possible and very practical to work the way I do as a, mm. as a, a one-off. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I think we're taping this or recording this now just post the COVID sort of restrictions mm. and you look at the world has changed and yeah. uh, you know people working from home during that period zoom technology for meetings yep. you know all that sort of stuff that's going to be interesting from a like you said consultancy i can you know we're looking here mm. at reducing our our footprint in terms of office mm. space do we need as much i think yep. most organizations will think that can our employees yeah. work from home more and that that will open up more work for an industrial consultant like yourself well i think that's right and i'll need to update my armoury, if you yeah. like, in terms of my understanding of what are the drivers of working from home, how do you how do you manage someone who's working from home effectively, and given what I do, how do you make sure you don't mm-hmm. step into a, a huge hole when you're trying to manage that person yeah. uh, and create absolute mayhem for yourself that can be horribly expensive mm. uh, for the business. Um, so it, it, again, it's a whole new set of issues from my point of view as well. It, work is changing, therefore industrial relations practice changes, um, quite apart from any legislative change or other change that might might be coming our way um, in the next little while. Oh, I, I could imagine someone who likes research and getting to understand that sort of information, you're going to love looking at that new changes. Yeah, I'm not entirely convinced <laughs> about that. Um, when I first started in IR... Uh, there was the New South Wales Industrial Relations Act and there was the Conciliation and Arbitration Act federally. Um, Then we had the New South Wales... uh, I think it was still called the Industrial Relations Act, but it was a completely new act. And then we had the Workplace Relations Act federally, uh, both completely different. And then we had work choices federally. The New South Wales system has, for me, has just disappeared for the private sector. And then we had the work, the um, the Fair Work Act. Um, I'm not sure that I really, <laughs> I'm really change. keen for a, another <laughs> wholesale change in in the network in the uh, in the regulatory framework. <laughs> uh, but there's there's always change. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sometimes you look at it and think, you know, why would anyone think that that was a good way to go? Yeah. But that's life. That's how uh, it is. You just deal with it. Um, but yeah, it's it is interesting. It, it but it's still about the people. Mm. Um, there's still issues of of effectively social justice. Yeah. Why would you even think, as an employer, that this was a good no, way to fair. treat mm. uh, an employee or as an employee? Why in heaven's name would you do that yeah, to the person who pays you? Yeah. Um, yeah, the idea of respect and dignity um, is for me, still a very important issue. I might not talk about it a lot to my clients directly because that's not what they're looking for. No. But underlying it is still a, well, you know, what's good practice? And good practice is, to, is treating people as human beings when you're working your way through the, the complexity of the regulatory system. Uh, and that ultimately is what, what is important. Absolutely. Um, Mm. All right, so we've got a time machine in our podcast. So if we Ooh. can rewind the clock to 20-year-old Greg Kerr. Given what you know today, what advice yep. would you give him? 
So 20-year-old Greg Kerr was doing his honours year in philosophy at Newcastle Uni back in the 1970s. Um, I think what I'd probably say to him is you don't know where you're going to end up. Just take the opportunities as they come and see where they lead you. Um, Back then I was a philosophy student. I had in mind to become an academic and work in philosophy for the rest of my career. No. Yeah. Completely different. Other opportunities presented. Other opportunities presented and ultimately I got into something that I've now been doing for almost 35 years and really love. Um, If you'd asked Greg Kerr back then, is this what you're going to be doing in 2020, the answer would have just been this look of, (laughs) what are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, it's really take the opportunities that present themselves. Um, Don't be afraid to open doors. Open the doors. Look at the world. It's a wonderful place. There are all sorts of really interesting byways. My yeah, choir, yeah, I never would have thought when I joined the ANU Choral Society that you'd be, you back know, in 1978 that I would end up travelling the world and yeah. working with a choir that arguably was one of the best in Australia. Um, so, yeah, it's really about you don't know where things can lead. Be open. Excellent. Love it. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Greg. Oh, thanks, Craig. It was really good to catch up. Really enjoyed our chat. So rather than being on the phone as normal, it was great to see yeah, you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> go through it face-to-face. Yep, we awesome. can do it by Zoom next time. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> and see each other. Thanks, Greg. Cheers. Thanks once again for listening to our Career Conversations podcast and a special thanks to our guest today, Mr. Greg Kerr. I hope you learn a lot about his life and journey through his career arc. If you love listening to our podcast, I I encourage you, please rate us on Apple. Uh, It means that we get higher up in the standings and more people will get to listen to our great conversations about people's careers. Um, Either listen to us via Spotify, SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. Uh, If you've got any guest recommendations, I'd love to hear about those either through our Facebook page or you can send us a, a message through our website. We'll have Greg's uh, LinkedIn profile details up on uh, the show notes on our webpage. And we'll also have details of his website if you need some IR assistance in the future. Thanks again for listening to the Career Conversations podcast brought to you by Hunter Recruitment Group. And again, I'm your host, Craig McGregor.